Our reading today is from John chapter 21, the whole of the chapter. Jesus appears to seven disciples. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have have any fish? And they answered, no. He said, then cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were unable to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, it on, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land and about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and it had fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples, was revealed to the disciples after he had raised, been raised from the dead. Jesus and Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said this to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he, Jesus had said this to him the third time. Do you know, um, third time. Do you, love, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
This, he said, to show by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus and the beloved apostle. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one that had been reclining at the table close to Jesus and had said, and said Lord, who is it? Um, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he will remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers and the disciples that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say that to him. He would him that he was not to die. He said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would contain it all. May God add his blessing to his word. We come today to the uh, last message in this series on John's Gospel where our purpose has been to gain a glimpse of Jesus afresh. And uh, it sort of seems sad to close it out But uh, I look at this passage as uh, quite a peculiar one in as much as if you're reading the chapters that I've left out, we haven't dealt with uh, the fantastic resurrection appearances, the two others to the disciples. And it seems like in the previous chapter, in John chapter 20, that uh, John has uh, rounded out his book beautifully and and finished it off and bound it and sent it to the printers. as he finishes with those classic words uh, now G, uh, in uh, chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but if they are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. It seems like that is the final verse and then he comes into this remarkable scene, fancy finishing such a wonderful gospel that we've been walking through with the story of Jesus and the boys at a barbecue. But that's what it is. And uh, it it is as if... I I don't think that Jesus is doing what the the sitcoms used to do, the American sitcoms in in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, those who would remember uh, Jungle Jim and Mikhail's Navy and Tarzan and... I'm speaking of the reruns, of course, that uh, uh, you know, you'd, you'd have the drama, you'd have the climax, the resolution, and then there'd be this little funny bit before the credits or sometimes after the credits uh, where the chimpanzee would run away with the bathing costume or whatever and it was ha-ha, hee-hee. And uh, you sort of think, mm, did we really need that? You know, it's, uh, and, and it's a bit like that with this, this chapter. And here we have uh, the story that begins, and it's so focused upon Peter. 
And I think uh, this passage actually is so critical to those who have believed in Jesus, who are uh, recipients of his grace. It's quite possible to be, as Peter is in this story, people who understand or who know the great themes of the gospel and can trot it out, but don't live in the freedom of the gospel. It's not their personal experience. It's not shaping the way they operate. It's what they assert, yes, but in terms of effectively governing the way they operate, maybe not so. And in this story, we begin in the first 14 chapters. There's basically three parts to the chapter. The first 14 verses, we have this remarkable picture that Peter, in this interim period between uh, the resurrection of Christ, and they've, they've seen him, he seems to just bounce in and out of their lives somewhat at random. He seems to have an agenda which they, uh, is a sort of a scarlet pimpernel agenda. They can't quite uh, know when he's going to crop up next. And yet the coming of the Spirit has not happened. The ascension has not happened, so the Spirit has not been sent. They're sort of without a mission. They're, they're you know, footloose. And Peter particularly is rather... Uh, well, it's like he's got a burr in his saddle and he's, he's not comfortable in his own skin. And the hours are long and he, he doesn't know what to do. And Peter is a typical extroverted activist. And so he says to the lads, well, why don't we go fishing? I can't stand just sitting around here waiting and, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next. And let's, let's go fishing. And it's night fishing. That's the best time to fish. And the fish are biting and uh, they get out in someone's boat, six of them. And they go for a, a night fish. And it just so happens to be one of those nights. It's almost like someone has emptied the lake or the fish have gone to a conference or an in-service or something and they're not there. And they're tacking back and forth and there's nothing, not a bite. doesn't matter what they do. And these are men, these know, they know these waters. They can't put their finger on it. And as dawn is coming up, they're docking back to where they took off about 100 yards from shore, only the slightest of breeze, and sound travels across the water very well. At that time, there's no, there are no sounds. But they notice a lone figure ahead on the beach. And this figure yells out at them across the water, and they can hear his voice quite, uh, quite clearly. Throw your nets to the other side. And they think maybe he can see something they can't. And so doesn't hurt they get the nets and together they heave the nets as far as they can out of the boat to the other side all of a sudden there's a kerfuffle and a flutter and there are fish right there big fish lots of them and they start to haul it in so much so that they've got to brace the boat and bend back against the the keel and put a lot of pressure on that as they haul these fish taking all their strength to get into the, the, the boat. And right then, the writer of this book, he calls himself the beloved disciple, out of a sense of modesty. This, <laughs> the one who Jesus really loved. <laughs> I actually have a daughter, that, that's, her, that's her way of operating, you know. Your favourite here, Dad, <laughs> whenever she gets on the phone. And... Uh, and she, she, this, this disciple is, is, has that sense that he knows he's uh, in Jesus' eye. And, but it, 
suddenly the penny drops. Deja vu. And he goes, we've been here before. Don't you guys remember in Luke 5 when we're called and Jesus sent us out? And he goes, it's the Lord. And uh, they haven't, it hasn't done, dawned on them that the Scarlet Pimpernel has come again into their experience. And Peter is so thrilled. And as the others are dealing with the fish, curiously, did you notice the detail? Peter puts his dressing gown on and hops into the water. I don't usually get dressed to go for a swim, but, but Peter gets dressed, and that's not an unimportant detail. Remember, John is the impressionist painter amongst the Gospels. The little things are the big things. And he leaps into the water and swims out 100 yards and clambers out and meets Jesus and he's thrilled to see Jesus and at that point uh, the boat is having a bit of trouble you know as they have to drop uh, their their sails etc and you know the danger of that boat lilting and losing the whole 153 he goes in he helps and they drag these fish in only to notice that Jesus already got the barbecue going he must have been there for hours because there's charcoal there and there's coals, and there's the smell of fish and fresh bread. And, and after a night, a whole cold night out in the lake, I think that would have smelled incredibly appetizing. It's an invitation to be with Jesus that cannot be resisted. And these, these men, they, they're so thrilled and they throw out their catch. They remember that there was, they couldn't believe it. They decide to count them. It's 153. It's not a significant figure. Don't read into it, you know the United Nations or anything it's uh, uh, it's just amazing the number of fish that they've got and they decide to count it and uh, but this is an object lesson and they should remember that it's the same object lesson that they had at the start of the journey which John does not tell us about but at the point of calling it's that simple lesson and there are four in this passage for those who would live fruitful lives with Jesus the first one is that obedience comes before fruitfulness you have to heed his word if you want to have full nets obedience precedes doing work that will count in eternity if we don't have fruitfulness we've got to question the issue of obedience and we never graduate from this. This is the point Jesus is saying. You've been through so much. You've come so far. You've, you've seen the turning point of cosmic history in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That does not mean, because you understand all things now, that somehow you've transcended the necessity for obedience. And John reminds his church of what Jesus reminded the disciples, of what we need to be aware of, that it doesn't matter how long on the tooth you are, it doesn't matter how prominent you are, how big is your stage, how many gongs you have in the Christian world or any world, obedience precedes fruitfulness. You cannot be fruitful in a real sense, an eternal sense, without being obedient. We never graduate from the barbecue. Anyway, at that point, Jesus, they've eaten their full, they're having a good time on the beach, and uh, you can hear the laughter and the small talk, and the jesting and the jibing. And then Jesus catches Peter's eye and 
draws him away from the crew. And we go through this incredible period, just in four little verses, John 21 and 15 to 19. And Jesus asks him a probing question that's sort of straight out of left field. And he says, So you love me more than these, these other disciples. Pete, you love me more than these. And it's an embarrassing question. And Peter, he's pretty sure he knows what Jesus is getting at. That the last time they had a meal, they haven't had a meal like this since the Last Supper. So Jesus has sort of orchestrated this whole scene to twig Peter's memory, to, to tap his nervous system, familiar smells and noises, just like the Last Supper. And in the midst of that supper, Jesus had told them that before this night was out, they were all going to abandon him. And remember Peter says, Oh, never me, Lord, maybe these guys, yeah, not much job. But me, I'll be there when it counts. And Jesus says, So you love me more than these? And and Peter deflects the question. uh, You know, of course I do, Lord, you know. Jesus says, Feed my sheep. Peter goes, oh, my goodness, thank goodness, that's over. (laughs) Then Jesus asks him again, do you love me? And Peter is a little bit affronted by the fact that Jesus has asked him that. It seems strange. It's sort of not that Jesus' memory is poor like the strange uncle at Christmas. He he is not letting Peter get away from the question. Of course I love him. And then Jesus asks him a third time. And each time Jesus, as soon as Peter answers, Jesus recommissions him. What's happening here? Jesus is speaking right into the depths of Peter's turmoil. Bon vivant Peter is actually totally messed up inside. And suddenly the third question reminds him of that night when there were three questions. When a maid at the door of the high priest's house notices Peter tagging along to watch the entertainment that night on Jesus' arrest. They say, you're one of his. Peter tells a little white lie. He thought it would just go away. Oh, no, 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 no. Got me wrong. And in the middle of that investigation, as the high priest's servants are slapping Jesus around, they notice Peter cringe. And they say, you are one of his. He says, no, he gets rather furious and insistent, but he's not. And then a moment later, he bumps into a relative of the guy who only an hour ago he has chopped off his relative's ear. You don't forget a face that quickly. And Peter denies it vehemently. There must be two Peters. They look like me. It's you know someone else as you. He just swears outright that it wasn't him, and he cannot tolerate being associated with this Jesus. He is saving his skin. It is a cringe factor par excellence. And at this point, Jesus has to ask the difficult question the third time, and the penny drops. Jesus remembers that moment in denying Christ 
and he hears a cock crow. Christ looks at him and he sees in the eye of Christ, I knew you'd do this, Peter. The disappointment. And Peter hangs his head in shame. Same thing happens. They have to go back over this territory right now. And Peter says, you got me there, Lord. You know all things. You know what I've been, what I've done. You know what I'm going through now. And you know my games that I play. You know all things. You know my pathetic weakness. You know my inconsistency. I'm ashamed to say you know the charade of my shallow extroversion. Each time, though, the Lord comes back with, well, feed my sheep. Instantaneously, the Lord reinstates. And this is to be a principle that he wants Peter to remember. Two principles that come together. First principle is, we are never more than who we are before the all-seeing gaze of the all-knowing God. That may sound like a terrifying transparency. But we are never more. It's a fact. He knows all things about us. And we are never more than who we are before the all-seeing gaze of the all-knowing God. Remarkably, Peter probably thought he could just jolly Jesus along and he would forget all that that they've been through over the last couple of nights, a couple of weeks ago. And Jesus was going to play the same game, his same psychological game that he plays. And he just joke it along and eventually time heals things. Well, it hadn't healed Peter. His conscience was raw. He was a mess. But he could keep the show going on the outside. Role restoration is easy. Soul restoration is delicate surgery. And Jesus is not just interested in superficial reinstatement to a role. Because, and here's the third principle, what we are becoming matters more to him than what we'll ever achieve for him. In fact, that is his goal, to transform us. Not to turn us into worker ants, but into friends of God, sons and daughters of the living God. What we are becoming matters more to him than what we'll ever achieve for him. That is his priority. And that's why he won't let Peter off the hook. That's why he has constructed this whole barbecue. That is why he has called Peter aside. That is why he is giving Peter pain right at this time and he won't accept a false pseudo-self. The Lord is not interested in having a relationship with a construction of our own imagination. He is not interested in having a relationship with who we wish we were. He wants a relationship with who we really are. The real self is the one he loves, thank God. Not the one we wish we were. Peter's approach 
is keeping him at arm's distance from the love of God and the love of God pushes that arm aside and gets uncomfortably close. Peter's approach to dealing with his guilt and to his conscience that is troubling him is to deny the very new covenant status that he has. It's deny that the cross of Christ has shed the blood that should have cleansed him. His approach is the extroverted approach of suppressing his conscience and putting on a happy face. That's probably different to some of us here who use a different approach, the introverted jump at shadows, don't step on the lines approach, where we become super sensitive to little peccadilloes that don't really matter, and we think that eventually, when, when we've done enough penance, when we've been hard on ourselves for long enough, we'll be able to creep up towards the Holy of Holies again. It's, it's like Christ has not entered the Holy of Holies with our sins. I call these outer tent solutions. and Many of us use them. When I've stood staunch about the length of hair or the height of skirts or alcohol or all these issues, then I will know I'm worthy. I will feel like I can approach God. And that is to trust the voice of our seared conscience rather than listening to the clear voice of Jesus Christ. It's actually medieval Catholicism. It's hair shirt theology. And it's a way that it might psychologically satisfy us for a little time, but it is a heresy enacted. Jesus Christ will not have us live in the outer tent. He wants to invite us into the inner chambers of his own fellowship, Son and Father and Spirit. That's why he died and he's not satisfied with the symbolic stuff of Judaism. He wants us to have the reality of really being right with him. There's a couple of verses here that I have on the text somewhere there in your notes that reminds us the book of Hebrews is playing off this same theme that the very construction of the temple is a picture of the human psychology. The inner theatre is the outer theatre of the temple. And in that book, it reminds us that if in in the old covenant, the blood of the beast could cover the mere peccadilloes of this this, uh, life, he then says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who offered himself through the eternal spirit, you know, through, remember that word, interpenetration? When Jesus is offering his, his work, the spirit is at work, taking that offering. And that spirit now takes that offering and he will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, from stepping on the lines, from being against this and against that and, and abstinences and trying to make ourselves worthy in the sight of God. He'll put all that aside. The Holy Spirit will do that in our lives. His work is to cleanse, did you notice? Not just our records, to cleanse, did you notice? Not just the charge sheet against us. It's not just the objective realities that the Spirit works to cleanse. But God's blood cleanses the subjective realities, the innermost parts of our lives. That's his purpose. 
And Jesus doesn't want the saint to be playing silly games when he'd rather embrace them. But to get to the point of embrace, you've got to get to the point of offence. You've got to pull the burr from the saddle. There are two sorts of psychic pain you can experience in this life. 2 Corinthians 7, one of my favourite verses, 7.10, contrasts these two sorts of psychic pain. He says, for godly grief, the sort of grief that happens when God puts his finger on your conscience, godly grief produces repentance with no regret, but worldly grief produces death. When you play the games of suppression, of activism, of avoidance, it produces nothing but death. Godly grief does produce sorrow. It does produce repentance. It is embarrassing. But do you know, at this point in the story, I reckon Peter, though he's hanging his head in shame, he has experienced immense relief. The pretense is over. He and Jesus are like that. Lord you know. What a wonderful statement. No excuses, no rationalizations. Lord, you know. What a wonderful prayer. Words are pointless. I don't need to mount a case here, Lord, because you already know. <laughs> no place to hide. Ain't that wonderful? Well, right then, the Lord says, well, let's press on. Verses 18 and 19. Jesus said to him, you know, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you did, do you know, you're a free instrument. But when you're old, and he speaks of the fact that Peter is going to be bound, it's speaking of an arrest, his development will be arrested. <laughs> his life will not go on. He will not live to an old age. It's going to be cut short. What an honour. And God wants Peter to know that something like he has experienced, the Lord Jesus' experience in his incarnate ministry is going to be Peter's experience. Tradition has it that Peter himself was crucified, just like the Lord. And Peter is ready for that. The Lord has prepared him. I find there's so many saints... And so many Christians who experience great grief in their Christian life, particularly at the loss of a loved one or at the loss of a faculty of their own. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were going to our church and we decided to park the car and we got out and we walked a few blocks to church. It was a funny thing to do. I don't know why I did it. Coming around the corner, we noticed a guy two blocks away in a wheelchair cruising up towards us. And he had a, I thought he had a Bible in his hand. And closer he got to me, I realised I knew this guy. It was Tim. He was the husband of, of one of my dear friends from uni. I hadn't seen Tim in many years. He was a partner in a law firm the last time I saw him. I remember asking Tim, and he'd given me a lot of advice through the years, and I... I remember asking one, one stage, um, you know, how many cases would you carry in a book? And at the book at one time he said, oh, about 70. 
It was an enormous workload that he was carrying and things in his mind. He was a terrific barrister and a marvellous person, an ex-sportsman. And I knew that in his early 40s, he'd had a stroke. And he came up towards us and uh, I introduced myself. I hadn't seen him in years. There he is on the street corner going to another church, another block down, further down. And it was sort of sad seeing this guy who was sharp as a tack barrister, uh, a man with great responsibility to achieve so much in life. But if you could tell as you had the conversation, and we did the small talk things that you do, that he wasn't really comprehending the questions. He'd learnt a set of pattern responses and he could barely speak. You know, now I look at a guy like that and... If I have just a human perspective, I ask God tough questions. And I say, how can you let that happen? You know, I can understand it in some shape, but Tim. But if we're going to be fruitful questions, we need to know that God's honour requires an eternal perspective. We need to understand critically that this life that we live it may seem long, it may seem short, but all of them are short compared to eternity. And the work that we have now is not the end of our work. It's really the pots and pans on the kitchen of the floor of heaven compared with what we will be doing in the future. When we are told that we will be running the governance issues for the universe. And this is just the apprenticeship. We need that perspective because the danger is when we start to notice the seeming injustice of this life that we'll lose our sense of the privilege that it is Christ we serve and he is the prize at the end of the day. The honour that we have of serving Christ should be enough. Not the length of our ministry, or the height, or its scope, or our celebrity, but that we have served Christ somehow, some way. Well, at this point, Peter turns around and he noticed that John has started to leave the barbecue, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he is tottering along behind. And Peter, you realise Peter is not regenerate? Do you realise that you are more saved than Peter at this stage? Don't forget the Holy Spirit has not come to Peter as yet. The transformational work hasn't happened. He's still old Pete. And he turns around and in typical old Pete fashion, he notices John and he cannot resist, typical shallow extrovert, he cannot resist asking the question, but what about this guy? You know? Okay, I'm, I'm going to have my life cut short, but what about him? Yeah, what's... And Jesus says, well, basically, rudely, none of your business, Peter. <laughs> and he gives him a rap over the knuckles. None of your business. You follow me. I've given you your marching orders. March those. Don't worry about him. That's none of your business. It's one of the amazing things that I notice, particularly amongst pastors, is this same syndrome, the what about him syndrome. And 
we are terribly competitive. We tend to feed off our successes as if our worth in God's sight matches our, the size of our stage. I was doing a pastor's um, uh, training session up at Morling College a few years ago. And good college. I'm not saying anything bad about Morling College, but there were a range, mostly Baptist pastors, in this, this uh, thing, this training event. And I was stepping cold into there. I didn't know those people from a bar of soap. And we were in a, a little room with a whiteboard and all that sort of thing. I thought, before I let fly with my brilliant ideas, um, why don't we get to know each other? And uh, so I went around the room and said, just, just tell me your name, where you serve, something about your church. Unfortunately, the first person I turned to basically says, well, I'm Pastor so-and-so from something Baptist Church. It's about 500 strong. And I'm the senior pastor. From that point on, guess what happened? The narrative was, well, I'm, I'm Pastor Fred Woggs. I'm from this church, and we've only got 30. But we're growing! <laughs> it was pathetic. They thought automatically that they needed to justify themselves to me, a total stranger, by the size of their flock. That's got nothing to do with Christ. It's totally carnal. It's totally pink lady or something, but it's not Jesus Christ. Discipleship is not a competition. Whatever the Lord gives you, you don't know how critical it is that you fulfill that which he has placed on your plate. It might be one neighbour. You don't know how critical that obedience is to pray and minister to that neighbour. If you're not going to do that, his internal scheme has to be fulfilled by someone else. So if you want to be really helpful for the kingdom, whatever he has placed on your plate, you do that with all your heart. And that makes his heart so glad. It is so easy to think we're effective when he has trusted us with a big stage or a big responsibility or a big title. And it's so easy to delude ourselves that we are now doing the will of God when in fact, who knows what we're doing. It may not be ministry at all. Discipleship is not a competition. Jesus knows that if we think it is, then very quickly we will compromise whatever it is that's not producing the results. And envy will end up destroying any lasting blessing we could have had. Well, let's talk more immediately. What about us? What about us in this day? I think we've got to stand back and look at the massive picture here that we see, this passage in the light of the whole book. That here we have Jesus having witnessed to himself that he is God in flesh, that he's fulfilling his promises to Israel, that he hasn't forgotten Israel, but he's performing an act of salvation that opens the potential of relationship with the one God to the whole world. 
and he's come and he's experienced incredible contempt from the people who should have accepted him. And yet he's still gone through and he's, he's fulfilled that journey at the cross. And God has said, yes, you have done your my will and he's risen him from the dead. This amazing story, there is not another story in humanity that will ever be written to, to compete with that story. We've come through that, we've got to this point. And Jesus, all he's got to do now, he's finished his work, he's manifested himself to the world, the new risen Jesus. You would think at this point, if I was Jesus, I couldn't wait to head home, to get out of this environment of contempt, to get to that place where I'm appreciated, where I'm known and I'm recognized, to hear really good music, the angels singing my praises. That's what I deserve. But he's got nothing better to do than to seek out an old mate who's trying to cover up his wounded conscience with cover stories and to set him free from his silliness, this silly suffering soul. So I think it's entirely feasible that we who live in this age now that this Jesus has come back to us, remember John 14? He's come back to us in the presence of the Spirit of truth. Do you think he's going to just let us bounce around randomly from barbecue to barbecue? No way. The trouble is, when we are saved, we now have this same Jesus operating right within us by virtue of the person of the Spirit, the Spirit of the truth. And when we compromise our faith, we get an immediate conscience hit in a way that Jesus had to, to wait for a, orchestrating a fruitless night to tell Peter about it. He comes home directly to us. So I find so often Christians say to me, if only I had a word from the Lord. I say, have you sinned lately? Oh yes, there it is. What happened? The word from the Lord is the live conscience. You don't need to become a mystic to get deeper. The Spirit of God is at work pricking your conscience and it's critical at those times when you sin and when you sear that conscience that you say, Lord, you know all things. No games. Oh, you haven't come to the wrong address. Yep, that's my egg, that's my face. Because at that point, you can have immediate restoration. Let's get back in the game, he'll say. But let's talk about why it is you felt you needed to do that. And that's how the Lord operates. Don't underestimate the cosmic significance of a troubled conscience. It is Jesus Christ present in you, seeking you out. If he didn't care about you, he'd just let you flunk and flunk and flunk and fake it right through life. And he's not interested in that. He wants to draw you into his embrace as the spirit of truth, this same Jesus. And I've found many Christians over the years have gone, oh yes, I know Jesus' blood died for my sins so I could get into heaven, but Jeff, you don't, know, you don't know what I did, 
seven years ago or you don't you don't live with my conscience and I take you back to that verse of Hebrews that verse of Hebrews is saying we don't need to stay in the outer tent of the tabernacle waiting till we feel worthy you can either trust your own little schemes like a good medieval Catholic monk or you can hear again the words of Jesus of restoration you can press yourself against the cross more firmly yes it's painful yes it's embarrassing yes it's disappointing but yes Jesus blood means I can face him eyeball to eyeball without cringe and be embraced by him that's your experience that is normal Christian living and that's what John this apostle who finished the course, added an extra chapter to his book because that is so important. That's the last thing he wants to leave you with is that Jesus wants to restore you instantly. Isn't it remarkable that the Holy Spirit, when he comes into your life, he comes in to disturb you because he loves you. And when he comes in, the same spirit who held the blood of Christ at Calvary, he brings that blood and pours that salve over your memory so that that wound will heal. There is no other healing quite like that in eternity. You want to say something to him this morning? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the one who knows us. We thank you so much that we are so fortunate that we live this side of both Calvary and now Pentecost. We thank for your presence of your spirit. And we thank you that if you could forgive Peter, the unique betrayer of the Son of God, instantly restoring him to fellowship and service. We thank you that you can restore us because that's the power of the blood. That's the reason why you came. And Lord, if there are games that we have played and cover stories which we have laid over our conscience, peel away this proud flesh this morning, Lord, that true healing might take place that your spirit might disturb us and cause us pain. But we thank you, Lord, that you are the loving surgeon and you only cut to heal. We give you our consciences. We say, yes, you are right. We give you those deeds. We give you those words. We give you those cowardices. And we say, yes, Lord. You're right. You know everything. Thank you, Lord, we now say. Thank you for your reinstatement by faith 
we thank you for the death of Christ, the shed blood that the Spirit brings right into our consciences. Let him have his work this morning, we pray, for your sake and for our freedom.